Hey, welcome back. This is the recording from the Iowa Deer Classic and the follow-up recording with state whitetail biologist Jace Elliott of the Iowa DNR. So thank you very much for tuning in to the Prairie Farm Podcast. My name is Jim Farnham. My uh, favorite style of deer hunting is spot and stock, preferably out west, but I do like deer stand hunting, but uh, if I had my choice, it would be spot and stock hunting. Uh, definitely uh, with, if for guns, I'd say 350. Uh, just if, if you want to get it done, and if you, if you want to get it done, uh, use a 350 to just the versatility of it and how far it can shoot. But if you're just out there for, like, enjoyment and, like, like to have fun and like relax and hunt it's definitely just use your bow or use your old shotgun my name is Derek Hagen uh, big fan of saddle hunting uh, I like to hunt public just to hunt with some buddies uh, hunt a lot of private land and uh, looking to probably do some business with hockey seed for uh, up in my private land stuff so we'll see how it goes archery is the best way to deer hunt because it's it's uh, more challenging and you you have to be more stealthy and it's just way better than than hunting with a gun with a bow because it's more more a lot harder than using a gun i'm down here to the iowa deer classic jared scheffler i'm walking by this booth and i see this sign it says what is the best style of deer hunting and why and i would say on the ground look at chancy walters and you do the math <laughs> susan parker what is the best habitat for white-tailed deer outside Colicly, you use whatever kills them the best. My name is David. The best kind of deer hunting is anything but archery. <laughs> B- bow. Bow hunt. Just in the fall, everything's starting to get uh, a little chilly, and just the leaves on the trees are falling down. And just for the nature, I guess. To um, get something that smells like. A doe, and then the buck will think that's a doe there. Usually I hunt from a tree stand because I enjoy the quiet and the relaxation of that. My, I think the best style of deer hunting is <laughs> archery, just because it's the most primal way that you can take a deer, and it's even that more rewarding um, when you do get one. So I think that's the my the best way to take a deer i think i don't know my name is ryan gokenauer with midwest outdoor chasers and bighorn productions and what is the best style of deer hunting and why i'm gonna go with late season muzzle uh competition's a heck of a lot less deer a little bit more juicy so you can get to see him move a little bit more probably gun like deer drives because you got a lot of people involved gun Easy. <laughs> All right, Caleb Drake here. Um, the best style of deer hunting, I think it's a twofold answer for me. Uh, I really like the traditional, like, hang and hunt. Uh, I killed a buck last year doing that, and then uh, a year before that, I kind of did the same thing where um, just kind of find the right tree in the right area, hang the stand in it, and uh, just reading sign as you go in there and seeing, uh, seeing where the deer are. 
I think that that's something, especially for me going forward, um, trying to find the lightest stand I can get and sticks. So hang and hunt. Hey, I'm Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Best style of deer hunting, I think, is to use bad weather and follow them and hunt them from the ground. <laughs> All right, my name is Aaron McAllister. I'm with Deer Co. Uh, the best food plot for whitetail deer, in my opinion, is a little bit of mixture of turnips and rye. I hammer them all year on it. Early season would be rye and alfalfa because it's just hard to beat. That's natural Iowa. Late season, turnips and radishes because you can't beat that warm belly on a deer field in, in late winter. It's just that's hard to beat. You can't. I did standing beans, standing corn. They'll walk right through it all and go to the turnips and the radishes. It, you can't beat them. Yeah. Yeah, so what's the best method for hunting? I would say probably the most fun would be spot and stock. Um, I don't know how if that's the best method, especially for whitetails, but um, that's definitely the most fun with uh, trad bows, trying to sneak up on them and uh, see if you get in close for a shot. Um, so that would probably be my favorite, but I don't know if you'd call it the best. But, uh, yeah. I would say the best food plot is a variety that you have different uh, you appease to the deer's appetite in different parts of the season. In three, two, one. Well, we're fresh out of the Iowa Deer Classic, not even a week out. And uh, you heard at the beginning of this episode some of the answers that we got to a few of our questions that we posted up at our booth there at the classic asking people for their opinion on a few different things and deer hunting some were uh, pretty uh opinionated uh type responses or uh and we baited them into that of course but uh they were they were great you know not, nothing against any kind of strong feelings there in deer hunting uh you know i once heard a guy say the the great grant woods uh, land manager for whitetails down in the ozark area he said the only person i know only type of person i know that's more hard-headed than a farmer is a deer hunter and uh, <laughs> i think there's there's probably a lot of truth there i don't know i won't ask you if you agree with that though or not jace because we don't want our guests to make enemies with anybody out there listening to our podcast right now but i'm joined by jace elliott the state whitetail biologist what, what's your official title there with the dnr jace yeah you got it i'm a the state deer biologist for the state of iowa very good state deer biologist now is that is that a role that you are filling all by yourself or do you get, have kind of like a team of a couple biologists? What's the breakdown there for your office? Yeah. So I am a one man program when it comes to the deer program in Iowa, but of course uh, I don't operate in a vacuum. I, I work with some, some great colleagues and coworkers that are, you know, really helpful in, in our projects as well. Sure. Sure. So, uh, as you know, if you could see the video side of this conversation that Jason and I are having, you'd see some beautiful, uh, mounts in the background there. Uh, Jace told me, uh, uh, harvest both of them in Iowa this year. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. I was lucky to fill both my tags. That's awesome. So, uh, I also know from before the conversation that Jace is not a native Iowegian, um, he's, he's, uh, set some roots here now in his new role, but, uh, he comes from our neighbor to the Northeast. 
Wisconsin. He's a Scotty guy. And, uh, you know, historically, when you look at our country and look at whitetail culture, you hear a lot about uh, um, Wisconsin, you know, the the hunting camp type culture, the uh, deer drives, the, uh, you know, opening day, there's guns going off everywhere in the distance. There's just way more deer hunters in Wisconsin than there are in Iowa. Even really, I mean, I think you can go to pretty much any other big whitetail state other than maybe like Michigan. And, uh, of course you'll have the, you'll have the numbers probably to tell me if I'm uh, wrong here or not, but Wisconsin's right up there at the top of the pile for number of deer hunters. Is that correct? That's correct. I know at one point they did have, uh, the most deer hunters of any state in the country. I, I think that that's changed over time. Uh, perhaps Pennsylvania has eclipsed them now, uh, but certainly one of the top states for sure. Okay, so Pen- Pennsylvania, that's right. I forget that Pennsylvania is another big whitetail state. You know, I think Pennsylvania is kind of an under-the-radar state just for hunting in general. There's a lot of cool stuff you can chase out in Pennsylvania. Uh, but the same can can be said for Wisconsin, too. Um, Wisconsin actually has a small elk, reestablished elk population. Any ideas on, uh, or any idea on how that population is doing? Is it going to be a huntable population anytime soon? Oh, uh, well, it is a huntable population. Oh, uh, really? To, yep. So there are tags that are being offered every year. Uh, last I knew it was a total of maybe 10 tags statewide. Uh, but again, I, I haven't lived in Wisconsin for several years now, so I don't really keep my finger on that pulse. Sure. Um, yeah, there's two distinct elk herds that are seem to be growing by the year. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um, you know, it would be really cool to see that happen here in Iowa. But the amount of habitat, um, and and it's interesting to say that though, because elk are really, uh, a prairie species historically. Right. But, uh, and I don't think that there's a ton of prairie in Wisconsin either because, um, Wisconsin is a pretty big agricultural state as well. But, um, what do you think it would take to get elk going back here in Iowa again? Oh gosh, yeah. I, to be honest, wouldn't be very optimistic about. Uh, you know, I, probably not something I'd hold my breath for. I think the reason that they're as successful as they are in Wisconsin is due to the continuous habitat that exists in those certain areas um, where they were reintroduced intentionally. Hmm. I'm not aware of in the state here that uh, could serve the same kind of role. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. It we we just don't have a vast enough area, like you said, where we could, we could cut them loose and let them kind of expand, you know, their borders, uh, that's been going on in Nebraska. And that got really interesting over the summer with their July, uh, depredation tags that they were uh, handing out over there. But, um, yeah, I, I agree. I think our landscape is too, uh, too modified right now as in the and we use pretty much every square inch of it so uh allowing another grazer especially a much larger grazer to free range i think would uh cause a lot of uproar (laughs) yeah yeah, i think you're you're probably right um but you know luckily we do have uh in, in my opinion probably the best um best state for for deer habitat that i'm aware of 
Oh, man, you beat me to my next question. I was going to say, so being a Wisconsin guy, how do you feel about the phrase that uh, us Iowans like to throw around, Iowa, the whitetail state? Well, you know, I'm compelled to agree with that. Uh, you know, being, being a deer biologist, <laughs> I might not be in my role much longer if I were to disagree. But no, in, in all seriousness, I think we have something really special here in Iowa Definitely. when it comes to whitetail. Um, you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. But, um, you know, certainly the, the landscape is such that uh, it encourages a really healthy, high quality deer herd. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I, uh, love shed hunting. I love shed hunting just as much as I love deer hunting. And I actually have a very sad story for you that just drew to a close today. Uh, Jace, I, last year I found an absolute hammer of a shed, um, took him to the deer classic this year, got him into the North American shed hunters club. And, uh, he had a, just this, just a beautiful, like, like five point, you know, clean, typical frame, but on his G2, he has this awesome split and, uh, just a really cool buck. And my buddy, Caleb and I, who I do a lot of shed hunting with, we could not find the other side for anything. We couldn't match him up, couldn't match him up, looked everywhere, got all the permission on, on pretty much every neighboring farm. And, uh, you know, we just figured, well, we looked everywhere where he'd be. And there was one farm that we didn't bother asking if we could get permission to look. And, uh, just cause we assumed eh, it's probably not over there. You know what I mean? Well, over, you know, since that time, my buddy Caleb met the landowner and said, Hey, would you mind next shed season? If, um, you know, we went out and looked for sheds and he's like, Oh yeah, no problem at all. So, uh, fast forward to now, we have permission to shed hunt on this guy's property. We went out there today, and Jace, this is all that remains of the matching side to uh, that giant shed that I found. Um, hey, that looks like a Wisconsin shed if I've ever seen one. <laughs> What'd you say? That looks like a Wisconsin shed. <laughs> Yeah, the squirrels aren't very friendly to the, the sheds up there. Yeah, this is more than just squirrel damage, though. This is a, a bush hog chewed on this one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It it got mowed. It was out in the, the tall prairie grass there, and uh, he came through with his mower at some point last mm -hmm. summer and chopped it up. And the way I can know that it's the match, uh, at least I'm, I'm, you know, obviously it's the opposing side, but... Uh, also, it's very uh, angular here across the main beam going down towards uh, uh, the burr of the antler there where it would have been, and uh, it's just very square and uh, just has the same mass, same coloring, you know, just really, really looks like it's the, the, the closing chapter of that story. But all that to say, I'm glad we have a state where uh, a grown man can shed a tear or two over the antler uh, condition that he finds because knowing what it could have been uh, if you'd just right. been there a few months, you know, <laughs> before. So uh, we do live in an impressive place when it comes to white-tailed deer. Um, Nicholas and I were just up there at uh, the, the field station where Jace is doing the call from right now, I believe. And uh, we uh, got to see a lot of other uh, just – uh, great representations of what our state has to offer from a whitetail standpoint. Our buddy Ted 
or Todd Bogenschutz, uh, the state upland biologist is a, uh, he is definitely a deer hunter and he showed us a picture of a great buck that he was able to harvest this year. And, uh, um, you know, just a, a testament to what we have to offer here. And it's work from guys like Jace, guys like Todd guys, uh, you know, even our down to our conservation officers who, uh, patrol our our ground here in Iowa, enforcing rules. And, and really, I would like to do a little hat tip uh, to our legislators for adopting, you know, a set of of whitetail laws. I guess you could say that really protect the resource. It's no secret if you don't live in Iowa and you're a big whitetail guy. Iowa is an absolute pain in the neck to try and get a tag to come and hunt here. You got to wait multiple years if you want. And we're talking archery tag. There's some like muzzleloader, late muzzleloader opportunities that are a lot easier. But especially like, you know, an archery hunt the rut for big trophy Iowa bucks. It's not cheap. It's a hassle. And as a resident, I am very thankful for that. And I think that we have other neighboring states or not, maybe not neighboring, but close by that uh, rival Iowa in their quality of whitetails that haven't been so careful. And I think that that's kind of what sets the edge uh, for the Iowa resource uh, here. Um, but it's not all about antler size. It's not all about, you know, quality of bucks either. It's it's uh, the right population size for the amount of habitat and food and uh, disease management and, and everything else too. So I'm, I'm glad that you guys pay close attention to that as well. So got some questions for you here, Jace. All right. When we put up our sign, we asked some questions about uh, like the, you know, food plots, habitat, where's the best place to go hunting? What's the best, uh, you know, method for hunting whitetails. So, um, I'm going to kind of generally approach them, uh, with, with you, cause I'm sure your answer will include bits and pieces of all those things. Uh, right. but let's yep. start, let's start right away with, um, if, if somebody was wanting to go deer hunting, uh, what would be the best, like, like, let's say they have a farm, maybe they're a casual hunter. They go out once every gun season or something like that but they you know they decide they want to take things a lot more seriously they want to have uh good hunting opportunities all throughout the season you know from october 1st through uh january 10th and uh they want to first commit to improving the habitat on the farm what kind of habitat let's say it's uh they maybe have a little creek bottom ground they have um uh a lot of open ag fields and maybe uh um some area where it's not you know great production ground where uh, they aren't getting a great yield off their crops so they're willing to maybe take some of that out and and uh they have that they have some timber along the creek bottom but that timber has never been managed like what are some some steps that somebody could take to making better deer habitat? Yeah, great question, Ken. Um, so I'll probably answer that just using one one word, which would be diversity. Um, mm. You know, we're talking about diversity of cover types, diversity of food sources, uh, even diversity of, of land use patterns. You know, all of those things are going to optimize a property for for deer habitat and deer hunting. Uh, so deer are what's known as a generalist species. And 
that means that they're highly adaptable uh, to virtually all natural and, you know, in some cases, man-made landscapes. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, to get at your question, there's really no one land cover type that's perfect for deer year-round. You know, we're, you mentioned a mature oak stand, uh, which will provide excellent habitat during the fall in, in terms of its food resources when it's dropping acorns. Uh, but, you know, those cover types probably aren't doing much for deer during other times of the year, unless that canopy and understory are well managed. So I guess that leads me into another characterization of deer, which is that they're an edge species. So that means that deer will uh, relate highly to edges of, of two distinct cover types. Uh, you might hear this called a, a transition or uh, just broadly an, an edge. And the reason is due uh, to, you know, travel corridors in part. Uh, but another important reason is what's known as the edge effect, uh, mm. which I'd be happy to elaborate on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah explain, explain the edge effect a little bit. So basically, like I said, edges are where two different plant communities converge at one point, uh, meaning that these edges have the highest quantity of different food sources available in a relatively narrow area. Uh, so one of the best ways to manage for deer on a property is uh, maximizing edge habitat, uh, which, you know, can be further improved by methods like edge feathering, uh, for example, just, you know, to create a more gradual transition between mm -hmm. cover types. Uh, one, you know, anecdote that I think is is pretty universal when we're talking about deer hunting properties is uh, you're, you're managing your property well if you have more edge, linear edge, or transitions, then you do property boundary, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so wanting to build up those those things. Now, uh, from a, okay, so from a seed buyer standpoint, I'm, let's say I'm the guy who owns this farm, and I start looking around on the internet, okay, how to build better edge. And I see almost like, you know, name any kind of big name in whitetail habitat management. And I, and I could throw some out there right now, and but I'm not going to. You'd probably know who these people are. Well, let's say they start, you get on one of their websites and you start reading about Egyptian wheat. You start reading about giant miscanthus and you start reading about um, pompous grass and you start reading about, um, you know, uh, all you need is switchgrass. What, I mean, is, is that, is it better than nothing to go that route or should somebody uh, look to add more diversity there, like you said, and should somebody consider using native plants instead of some of these non-natives? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. And certainly not an easy one to answer quickly. Um, I, you know, any management practice that's being done in good faith is, is worthwhile, in my opinion. Uh, it, it's going to depend on the time, resources, and financial resources that a manager has at his disposal uh, as, as to what's going to be an ideal situation. Um, of course, native plants have benefits for deer, but also uh, a lot of different native wildlife species uh, that, that may not be able to be said uh, about some of those exotic plants that you mentioned uh now that's not to say that exotic species don't have their place in, in deer management and they can certainly create uh fantastic 
food and, and cover resources for deer. Um, but, you know, to answer your question about, about planting, uh, and, and maybe we can get into food plots a little bit here, you know, the ideal food plot is going to provide the most beneficial nutrients to deer uh, that are otherwise limited on the landscape. And what we're mostly talking about here is going to be two things, digestibility and crude protein levels. Mm. Uh, so that's the two things that I would steer anybody to focus on when they're narrowing down what they're going to specifically plant. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So well, let's say, you know, was something we, we would coach people on. And, and we had this conversation with a couple of people at the stand, uh, at the booth, I should say, um, when you use the word stand in a, a deer hunting conversation that, that changes meaning, but at the booth, uh, that we had, we had this conversation about, uh, we had some people who wanted some non-native species and as a seed provider, Hoxie can, uh, allocate those resources for people, but, uh, we kind of talked them out of a sale and, uh, we, we encouraged them to go back and do some research for the things Jace mentioned there, as far as the overall benefit for the whole ecosystem that the deer are living in. Um, you know, a great point that I heard, uh, recently, and I'll throw this guy's name out there because, uh, uh, what he said, I, I really think is good. Um, Kyle Liebarger uh, with the Native Habitat Project, I think, is who he works with, and uh, he's got he's a huge name on the social in the social media world. He's a forester and and native prairie enthusiast, and and uh, he talks about like how you know fifty years from now, after uh, and he talked about this on the Wired to Hunt podcast with Mark Kenyon, so I should give credit there as well. He talked about how. Um, 50 years from now, if people look at the landscape that hunters were once on and they see the presence of like expanding giant miscanthus stands and, you know, expanding uh, groups of pompous grass and, a, you know, they, if someone were to say, man, why do we have all this, in, these invasive grasses everywhere that look terrible, that don't belong here, cause other problems? Uh, he said the answer would have to be that somebody would have to give is, Oh, because hunters put those there and it's a black eye for hunting that he said. So that is a good thing to consider too. But, but, um, you know, if you have some of that stuff on your property, I'm not saying you need to get an excavator out and get rid of it pronto or whatever. Like Jay said, there's ways you can still work with what you have. My farm has so much reed canary grass that oh, yeah. I wish I could get rid of, but, um, that's a, that's, not something I can do in the short term. And, uh, in the meantime, I'm still going to hunt pheasants out of my reed canary grass and, and, uh, I'm still going to rely on it to provide a screen for deer to travel around on my farm. So, so you can still get used there, but <clears throat> the going back to what you said about digestibility and, uh, um, crude protein sources, yeah. Are there any uh, native species that come to mind that um, that somebody who's wanting to maybe put in natives or is maybe they don't even know what they want yet, just that that they think they could maybe start putting in that would help with with uh, managing their property in that way? Yeah. So instead of maybe getting into specific plants, what I can broadly speak on is that a pretty fail-safe 
way to go is legumes, which I'm sure mm. you're familiar with. Yep. Um, and, and for our listeners here, uh, legumes are nitrogen fixing plants, meaning that they're able to harness nitrogen from the air, the atmosphere, and, and actually deposit it into the soil. And of course, a lot of farmers are familiar with this concept uh, because yeah. of the you know, well-known benefits of cycling soybeans into crop rotations. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, soybeans would be a legume, but uh, others would include plants like clover, uh, alfalfa, and, and cowpeas. Now, uh, legumes are going to universally have high crude protein levels sure. for the most part. Uh, and they tend to be quite digestible as well. Uh, so, you know, they're certainly going to be highly preferred from deer. They're going to provide uh, a, a great amount of nutrition when it's needed. Um, so, you know, you really can't go wrong steering into those, uh, into that category of plants. Yeah, that's a that's great advice. And uh, again, going back to what Jay said earlier, diversity too. So even if I imagine the same rule applies there too, right? Where if you can find... A, you know, a number of plants that provide that protein value. Um, some that we sell at Hoxie that these would, these would be native species. Um, partridge pea, uh, Illinois bundle flower, round-headed bush clover, um, the tick trefoils, showy and Illinois. I think there is one tick trefoil though, that is, uh, quite invasive that you'll want to stay away from if, uh, I don't even know that it would be advertised for for uh, deer land managers or not, but I know I've heard of people really having to fight. I can't remember the name of it though. Uh, but Illinois or showy trefoil, those are both native here in in Iowa and excellent food sources as well. Uh, they're they're leg in the legume family. So yeah, that those are those are great pieces of advice there. Now, um, what about like? bedding cover and and uh you know uh maybe even some i guess you could work into that security cover so something that's going to keep fawns safe through the fawning season and 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 going to keep deer safe from you know predators in general what kind of what kind of things can be done to a property to add in some of that value yeah great question so when, when we're talking about bedding, it's I think it's important to to distinguish whether we're t- talking about uh, adult bucks or whether we're talking about the rest of the deer. Because yeah, really delineate. Yeah, yeah. Talk yeah. about both. Talk about both. That's great. So yeah, these deer are going to be operating on on completely different playing fields when it comes to bedding uh, for most of the year. Uh, so I'll start with adult bucks, and and here I'm talking about uh, two and a half years and older, and I know that there's listeners who you know maybe don't consider a, an adult buck uh such until he's you know three four five years old but mm-hmm. that's the biological uh category at least that i'll use now the reason that we can make this category is because they they operate in a solitary way during the fall uh at least excluding the rut so you know bucks of course will form social bachelor groups during the summer um but once that testosterone starts to spike which is going to correspond with uh, velvet falling off, then, you know, those friends are going to become foes pretty quickly. Mm. And, you know, this is all to say that bucks are likely selecting for bedding areas uh, that give them solitude in which they're unlikely to be disturbed by hunters, doe groups, uh, you name it. Now, I wanted to establish that adult bucks like to bed alone for a reason. And that's because uh, 
the fact that they do so fundamentally changes their betting strategy compared to that of a doe. So does, uh, you know, tend to associate with a familial group. Uh, we might call these doe groups or family groups. Not that they all have to be related, but usually these groups com comprise, you know, one or more adult does, perhaps some yearlings, uh, and then some fawns. Okay, so, so here's why all of that's important. Uh, the doe groups that you see travel together, that might walk into a food plot together, also tend to bed together. Mm. And that means that they have several sets of eyes and ears to detect any humans or, or other predators. Um, basically think safety and numbers here. Uh, therefore, it's, it's much, much less important where these groups bed uh, due to that safety blanket that's afforded to them by having so many eyes in the group. So since these groups don't necessarily select for safety, uh, you're more likely to find doe bedding uh, very close to food sources. You know, they're going to be a lot less picky about where they choose to bed. Uh, and sometimes you'll literally find them bedding in food sources, you know, hmm. uh, like open oak ridges or, or even, you know, on the edges or uh, inside of food plots. So you get the idea. But now back to bucks, since mature bucks, you know, they have to rely on themselves for detecting danger if they're bedding alone then these deer will often opt to travel much further from food in order to secure a safer place to bed. So I think that it's important to make that distinction uh, when we're talking about this kind of stuff. So, you know, often you'll find buck beds that have a backdrop. That, that's really common. Uh, something like maybe a tip-up mound uh, or a rock ledge, depending on the landscape. Uh, and basically, this is a strategy to keep predators from, you know, sneaking up from behind. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, a really typical classic buck bed in hill country will occur maybe two-thirds of the way up a, a downwind side of the ridge so this way bucks can you know smell what's up and over that ridge behind them while keeping eyes and ears pointed downwind uh, so basically they're able to cover all their bases um, but that's not the only place you'll find bucks bedding of course any sort of heavy cover like you know cattails deadfall trees scrubby understory uh, is all going to be you know ideal depending on the time of year. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's great. So, so then are there any, uh, management techniques that you know of to improve, uh, some buck bedding, uh, you know, stuff that, that a buck is going to seek out and feel secure? Absolutely. I think it, it mainly comes down to canopy management, which encourages understory management. So I think the biggest issue that we have with our forests in Iowa is that they're overstocked typically and the canopy is more or less closed and the understory is not responding mm. um now bucks and, and just deer in general aren't really going to feel safe a lot of times in in this kind of cover so the more you can do to open that canopy up and allow the understory to respond and and come up and, and provide that you know waste level cover uh you, you're gonna find far more deer bedding in those types of areas that's great. So uh, uh, maybe talk with a state forester then, right? And get a timber, yeah, timber a TSI recommendation, a timber stand improvement recommendation, and and uh, get out there and cut down some low value trees, or maybe there's some that have uh, value, and you can uh, do some logging. Um, I did learn; my family learned the hard way that you need to consult a state forester before you. Uh, um, do some logging though, because they can come in and help you, uh, get set up so that 
that's a renewable resource um, in the future. Uh, You know, if you can get a fly-by-night logger knocking on your door saying, hey, I think you have a stand of walnuts out there that I could make use of, and here's what I'd pay you. Uh, You know, make sure you get it checked out first with a uh, state uh, forester. Uh, uh, Shout out to Lindsey Barney out in uh, Fremont County for uh, teaching me that and doing a TSI walk with me and uh, giving my family some ideas to improve our, our deer habitat. But, but uh, yes. So looking at that canopy management, is there anything though, from like a uh, grassland standpoint uh, that can be done for buck bedding? And uh, I imagine probably more so for doe bedding. Like you said, they like to bed close to the food source. So giving them some tall grass, like a tall grass mix um, uh, near a food source would be, would be good for them. But what about bucks? Yeah. And you know, bucks will they'll bed as close to food as, as they can while still uh, accomplishing all those objectives of feeling secure. Uh, and, and, you know, they're, they're kind of hermits during the fall. So uh, yeah. they, they seem to like isolation for the most part. Now, you'll often see them kind of operating on the margins of the deer herd at large, uh, especially the older bucks um, before the rut. In terms of, you know, plantings and stuff like that, uh, I think that I think that whatever you can plant that maximizes bedding during the winter is, is going to be great because uh, it doesn't seem to me that, that bedding cover is necessarily limited during yeah. the warm seasons, right? Yeah, now, point. in terms of what to plant in order to accomplish that is probably where... Uh, our two worlds depart here. And, and I would, I would defer to somebody more with your expertise to answer those kind of questions. Um, but you know, a lot of these questions are situational and, and, you know, when you want to provide the cover, uh, you know, in terms of when the plants are going to senesce, uh, in, in all of that. So. Yeah. Great, great advice there. So, uh, be, be thinking about all those, you know, go back, re-listen to that last 15 minutes there or so, 10 minutes there of the conversation where Jace goes over the differences between bucks and, and does and, and what, you know, their, their objectives are. And that, that will serve as a good guideline for, for how to improve your, your property for them. That's uh, excellent advice. So, Okay, here's a, we'll kind of end on a couple of fun questions here. Um, uh, the first one is, what if somebody is like me and they're just a shed head and they like finding sheds as much as they like deer mm-hmm. hunting? Is there anything, and I, you know, I guess I should be fair here too. I think that the geography or geology, maybe is even a better term, the topography of a piece of ground is probably the most important factor for its its shed hunting value but are there are there any like habitat things and food things that somebody who wants to pick up more sheds on their say 200 acre piece uh that they could add into their deer habitat to maybe make that more likely oh definitely um so of course deer are shedding their antlers during the winter months you know we're talking about January, February, March, for the most part. So whatever it takes to hold deer onto your property during those months is going to be beneficial. Hmm. Uh, And this is the time of year when, you know, nutrients, at least on an Iowa landscape, are probably the most limited uh, of any time of year. Uh, Not to mention bucks are 
recovering from the rut. So their nutritional requirements are, you know, at a, a, a pretty high level and uh, et cetera. So whatever you can do to, to hold deer on your property is going to be key. Uh, obviously, you know, something like, like soybeans that, that go unharvested are going to be a, a major attractant during those months um, when, when they're, maybe isn't a whole lot else to eat on the landscape, especially if, if snow cover is, is kind of limiting things. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but yeah, just generally speaking, you know, planting for winter cover, planting for winter food sources uh, are certainly going to be your best bet for, for a shed hunter. Yeah. Great advice. So there is hope if your shed count is low and you uh, want to get more out of your property and, and uh, you know, some of those tips too, you know, farmers, who may not be wanting to, uh, they've just been given the gift of great shed ground, uh, whether they look for them or not. And they end up picking up a few of them in their tractor tires and ends up being pretty costly for them. Uh, I gotta imagine that even doing some of those habitat, uh, improvements, uh, like maybe putting a food plot in somewhere will keep the deer, direct them away from your production fields and, and maybe protect your tires that way too, or, I don't know. There's probably some ways that you could manage around that, but you also might bring more deer into the neighborhood and have more antlers on the ground too. So uh, maybe don't follow my advice on that. But but uh, certainly uh, some hope for for those of us who do want to find more antlers as well. Okay, so so kind of the last question I have for you here, Jace. The here's here's where you're gonna make some people mad. <laughs> what is the best way, in your opinion, to hunt deer? Oh boy. All right. So yeah. So I, I like to hunt deer mobily. I not a big fan of permanent stands. Um, Run and I, gun so guy, I, huh? but that's coming from a man who doesn't own land. So perhaps that's gotcha. part of it. Um, no. So, you know, all jokes aside, I grew up hunting a 40 acre piece of private land in, in central Wisconsin. Um, and, you know, really fortunate that my family had that, uh, that land for me to, you know, grow as a hunter and, and it expand on these passions, which obviously led to what I'm doing now. Um, but I'll tell you, I, I don't spend a lot of time sitting that property. You know, I, I have, I love the property, um, but I really like exploring, challenging myself, putting myself in new situations, um, whatever is going to allow me to grow as a hunter. And that's not how some people like to hunt, but you know, I, I don't know. I think there's nothing better than walking into an area with a stand on your back. It's the first time you've ever been in there. Uh, and, and you have to rely on new sign in order to make it happen. And when it all comes together, there's just, in my opinion, nothing that beats that. Mm. Uh, I'll, I'll take that over sitting in a tower blind, you know, any day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. So there you got it. Run, run and gun, whether it's, and I, and I take it, you do that method probably both for, archery season and then are you a muzzleloader guy or a a uh, 350 legend guy no i i think i'll stick with the muzzleloader seasons myself um i, I hunted early muzzleloader last year good choice that's yeah. the best deer season yeah. right there it was a blast yeah I, I got to use a canoe to get to some landlocked public and made it happen on the first morning yeah that's awesome yeah, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Jace, for, for coming on the show. Thank you to everyone tuning in. Uh, we know that this is not a hunting podcast, but hunting is certainly a part of uh, conservation. We firmly believe that. We are uh, believers in the North American model here at uh, Hoxie Native Seeds and the Prairie Farm 
And uh, we we hope that you're starting to see that as well, that hunting isn't just acceptable. It's an important component of good conservation practice. And we're thankful for guys like Jace, guys like Todd, who introduced us to Jace, and uh, everyone else there working for our state uh, agencies, um, uh, not just here in Iowa, but all over the country, who are truly trying to do the best they can to um, work within the guidelines that they're given to give us the best and healthiest uh, resource from a wildlife standpoint. And so uh, we're very thankful for that hard work. And we know that it's not always a painless process in doing so either. So thank you for making the hard decisions when they have to be made. I also want to say right now as well, Jace did not ask me to say this, but um, if you are given a bow hunter survey and you're listening to this, you are a hunter please participate in that. If you want your voice to be heard as a hunter and you want you want accurate information to be the most accurate information to be provided to our state game officials, uh, you need to be participating and letting your voice be heard through your survey. So please make sure you're doing that. And that, of course, doesn't just affect deer. That affects um, other fur bears that, uh, you know, have seasons as well uh, for both hunting and trapping. And so be sure that uh, you're participating in those ways. Well, thanks again, Jace. Thank you again to everyone for tuning in. Nick, thank you for editing this and splicing all this audio together. Um, Until next time, please remember conservation happens one mind and one yard at a time.